Do you know what I use to record these podcasts? It's Anchor by Spotify. It's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Let me explain. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or a computer. It's all really, really easy. It's all really intuitive. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome to Sports and Other But Sports with Kent Sterling for Monday, April 27th, 2020, brought to you by the great people of today's dentistry. Dr. Mike O'Neill, ready to administer to your every dental health need. The office is open. Give them a call, 317-849-2933. They are going above and beyond to make sure you are safe within the office. When you get there, they'll fill you in. They can do it on the phone, too. 317 849 2933. News out of the Colts today. Couple of cuts. Steve Ishmael, wide receiver, Billy Brown, tight end. We're waiting to hear about the undrafted free agents that the Colts are going to sign. Hopefully, there's a tight end in there someplace because the Colts need a tight end. There's no doubt about that. What do we think about the draft that concluded on Saturday? The Colts, nine new guys. Three of them we know pretty well, and two of them we predicted they were going to draft. You've got Michael Pittman, drafted in the second round, 34th overall. Jonathan Taylor, the running back out of Wisconsin. He was drafted 41st overall after the Colts traded up to get him. And then Jacob Eason taken in the fourth round, quarterback out of Washington. Jacob Eason is really, really interesting. Great when he's not pressured. Under pressure, Jacob Eason, not very good. 5.1 yards per attempt when he was under pressure. That ranked 99th out of 123. Here's my problem with this draft. I would have taken Michael Pittman, and I said that last week. Michael Pittman was my guy at 34. Then Jonathan Taylor. We love Jonathan Taylor. He's a Big Ten guy, rushes for 2,000 yards a season like it's his job up at Wisconsin. 4-3 speed, shifty, can create space, and then when he's got the space, boom, gone. Right? Nice draft pick, but do they need a a running back? Number one, it's terrible news for Jordan Wilkins. Anyway, I love the pick because you've got to have weapons, right? You've got your offensive line. Now you need weapons, so they've got a two-headed monster in the backfield. If T.Y. Hilton's healthy, Paris Campbell's healthy, and Michael Pittman are healthy, that's pretty good. You're going to be okay at wide receiver if those guys can stay healthy, but that's a big if. Then a quarterback. You wanted a young guy who is going to be able to develop. So in the fourth round, they take Jacob Eason. Eason is a pretty damn good quarterback. He's 6'6", 230 pounds. He's kind of athletic. He can move around in the pocket a little bit, and he can throw every pass. He's got great arm talent. So these are guys that we know and that we would have said, yes, let's go go get him. In fact, before that selection in the fourth round, hey, Jacob Eason's still on the board. Let's get him. Yay, they do. How often does that happen and it's the right call? The last time I really liked the way the Colts went about their business in an offseason was 2014. I thought, come on off 2014. When they went to the AFC Championship game, you remember the deflate gate game, right? Against the Patriots in Foxborough. They go through the offseason, and all of a sudden they're signing guys, whether it's Frank Gore, Andre Johnson, whomever. They go out, and they spend money, and they get lots of guys. I thought, my God, this team's going to win a Super Bowl. Look what they had. They still got what they had and went to an AFC Championship game with, right? Now they've added all this talent, hoping to wring out the little last bit of football they got in them. And those guys, they want to go out champions. 
So we feel good about it. That didn't come to pass. Everything went haywire in 2015, and I wound up with bleach blonde hair. That's not, I'm not making any bets based upon this draft. All right, Michael Pittman, I love. Jonathan Taylor, I love. Jacob Eason, you know what we're going to find out, but as a fourth rounder, we don't have any expectations for the guy. It's not like they took Jordan Love and you're thinking, hey, if he if he shows something in the preseason, maybe he's going to find a way to supplant Phillip Rivers as the starter or supplant Jacoby Brissett as the backup. With Jacob Eason, he just got to try to be making the team, right? So this draft, because we know a lot of these guys, and we rarely do, and these are guys that we know enough to say that's the guy, either Chris Ballard got really, really lucky, or I'm sorry, but Chris Ballard got really, really dumb. Because if I can draft for the Colts, that's a problem. If you got a general manager in agreement with all of us out here, that is a problem. And Chris Ballard, this draft at least three times, was in agreement with all of us, And that's no good, but we'll see what happens. Maybe we got smart. Maybe because this is Chris Ballard's fourth draft and we're kind of figuring stuff out, and they did have glaring needs, right? They weren't going to take a left tackle at 34. They weren't going to take a defensive lineman at 34. They checked that box when they dealt the 13th pick for DeForest Buckner. So they had needs. They don't need linebackers. You know, they're okay in some places. So you thought Pittman makes sense. Of course he made sense. And so they got him. Eason, we'll see. And Taylor, I think Taylor's got to be a stud. I think Taylor, as a rookie, runs for eight, 900 yards. I think that Marlon Mack, as kind of a, a sidekick, he runs for eight, 900 yards. I think that the Colts, they're going, to, they're going to be able to run the football. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Let's talk about the last dance. The last dance is fascinating to me. And, and really, my interest in the last dance is how generationally all of this is accepted. Um, when I was young and the Pistons were rolling with the bad boys, I hated Bill Ambeer. I still don't like him. I don't think I'd like him as a human being. I watched him last year when his Las Vegas WNBA team came to Banker's Life Fieldhouse and played Ants of the Fever. He was the same kind of a tool he was when he was a player. Utterly indifferent to humanity. That's Bill Ambeer. But Bill Ambeer at this point, I find to be a breath of fresh air. Because here's what Bill Ambeer said to uh, Rachel Nichols in an interview about the last dance and about the bad boys and about the Bulls coming over on the bad boys after being eliminated from the postseason three straight times by Detroit. Chicago finally gets the win in 1991. They go on to beat the Lakers in the NBA Finals four games to one after losing the first game. And he, so he was asked about uh, whether he regrets anything from back then. He said, why would I regret it now today? I don't care what the media says about me. I never did. If I did, I'd be a basket case, especially back then. I was about winning basketball games and winning championships and did whatever I had to do to get the most out of my ability and our team, and we did. At the end of the day, we're called world champions. They whined and cried for a year and a half about how bad we were for the game, but more importantly, they said we were bad people. We weren't bad people. We were just basketball players winning. And that really stuck with me because they didn't know who we were or what we were about as individuals and our family life. But all that whining they did, 
I didn't want to shake their hand. They were just whiners. They won the series. Give him credit. We got old. They got past us. But okay, move on. You know what? I love it. I like nothing about Bill Ambeer other than he is who he says he is. He doesn't portray himself as some kind of guy who, you know, he's likable and polite and decent. And then all of a sudden behind your back, he's a snake. He's a snake to your face. He's just an ass. That's all he is. And that's all he'll ever be in public, in private, everywhere. Be who you are. That's the lesson of Bill Ambeer, right? The Chicago Bulls were the better team in 1991 because the Pistons were the better team in 88, 89, and 90. That fueled the Bulls to get in the weight room, bulk up a little bit, and dish out punishment rather than absorb it. And that's how they became champions. Michael Jordan, a great leader, lifted everybody around him, whether it was Scottie Pippen or Horace Grant or B.J. Armstrong or John Paxson. That's what he did. He lifted. He also got the most out of his own ability. And when he was getting thrown around like a rag doll, he made himself into something other than a skinny rag doll. That's Michael Jordan's legacy. Michael Jordan, because of the Detroit Pistons, won an NBA championship in 91, 92, and 93, and then again in 96, 97, and 98. He was an absolute badass, and no less a killer, and no less an ass, to tell you the truth, than Bill Ambeer. He was just more graceful in doing it. If you're watching The Last Dance, there there are a couple of problems with it, but I find it incredibly entertaining to go back and look at Bulls teams that I really cared about back then. From 87 to 93, I lived in Chicago, worked in media, and I enjoyed that team. You could see them get better and better and better, and you understood why they were getting better and better. I remember when Doug Collins was fired and Phil Jackson was hired, and there were all kinds of crazy rumors about Doug Collins and why he was replaced. It didn't seem to make any sense sense. But then Phil, in 91, 92, and 93, 96, 97, 98, wins championships. And here's why. Because he understood how to get the most out of each individual. There are system coaches, and then there are personnel coaches. Phil Jackson was a person coach. He got the most out of each individual guy. He had Tex Winter and Johnny Bach do a lot of the stuff schematically, right? But He managed the people, and he did a great job of it. Because if you can manage Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant and Dennis Rodman and and then the other guys, you had a chance to be special. And the Chicago Bulls, they were special back then. It was fun to watch. It was fun to see up close and see how that team evolved from game to game, from year to year, from playoff series to playoff series. It was really joyous to see that happen. And you also got to see, and this is why The Last Dance is so kind of fascinating, and I I know that people are starting to get a little bit intolerant of the constant crapping on, on Jerry Krause, but Jerry Krause was arrogant. Jerry Krause wanted some credit for building those teams. He didn't get the credit because he inherited Michael Jordan. He still doesn't get the credit. But you know what? He got six rings. That's what he got. He got paid a lot of money to surround Michael Jordan with guys talented enough to go win six championships. And that ain't nothing. Jerry Krause, yes, obnoxious, uh, arrogant, uh, contentious, ridiculous, all of those things. 
and he was. And the arrogance robbed the Bulls of perhaps another championship in 1999. When he decided, uh, we got to blow it up. We got to sell while the selling's good. And we got to get out from under Phil Jackson because he didn't like working for Phil Jackson. Look, if you're a manager and you can't stay out of the way, you can't stay out of your own way, you know, then you go. Don't, not Phil. Phil's one of the best coaches in the NBA. Jerry Krause without Michael Jordan. How many championships did he win? Zero. Jerry Krause was not the thing. Phil Jackson, gone, so Michael was gone. How, how do you make that decision if you're Jerry Reinsdorf? I just don't understand. Jerry Reinsdorf still alive and still the owner of the Chicago Bulls. I don't get it. You've got your most important asset who wants to play again and wants to play for Phil Jackson, and Phil Jackson's won six championships as a head coach, but you decide to move on without Phil Jackson. How the hell is that decision made? I don't understand it. Jerry Krause gets crapped on. I think Jerry Reinsdorf ought to get crapped on because Jerry Reinsdorf backed Jerry Krause's play, and that was ridiculous. That made no sense. Anyway, the basketball, you can see the basketball as it was played back then. Guys got knocked the hell out. It was a tough man's game, basketball was back then. Now, not so much. Now you got guys who, yeah, they get a uh, kind of the golden ticket to the rim, you know, and, and nobody is thrown on their backs because the NBA decided, you know what, this isn't very entertaining. Thug ball, and it's not. It's not very entertaining, but I'll tell you this, that without thug ball, without the bad boys of Detroit, Michael jo- Jordan doesn't become the best player who ever lived. And anybody who's watching The Last Dance and looks at Michael Jordan and what he does on the basketball court from about 1986 through 1998, if you don't think he's the best basketball player in the history of the game, and if, if you want to put LeBron James second or third or fourth, that's fine, but it's distant to Michael Jordan, and we're seeing that up close during the last dance. Now, gra- granted, we're not seeing a lot of missed shots or missed defensive assignments, We're not seeing that. But what we are seeing, because I lived through it, I'm telling you what we're seeing is a representation of Michael Jordan that is absolutely accurate as to what happened at the time. So as you evaluate Jordan, don't just think you're watching a highlight tape and nobody misses shots on a highlight tape. You're seeing Michael Jordan play basketball at the level that he played it when he played it. And when you watch LeBron James, you're seeing that too. You're seeing a representation of what he does and how he does it. Michael Jordan was not born with the physical gifts of LeBron James. His physical gifts were astounding, but he wasn't born like a tight end with shoulders out to here. Michael Jordan had to build himself into a champion. LeBron James, he was kind of born into it. And then he had to go gather guys via free agency to become a champion. Michael Jordan did it the honest way, organically, with an organization that was garbage when he walked into it. All right, the Bulls in 1984 were nothing. Michael Jordan gets there, they became something, and then they became champions. LeBron, with the Cavs, garbage, they became something, but they never became champions until LeBron started gathering assets 
via free agency. What we've become as, as, as a basketball community is a branding arm, right? The NBA brands athletes. They've gotten really good at that. But as far as putting guys in a position where they can compete to get better and compete to win championships and compete kind of even-steven against each other, I think it's failed a little bit. People enjoy it because the marketing has been really good. And if you market your your product correctly, your product is going to sell if there's any quality to it at all. And there's a lot of quality with NBA basketball. However... I don't think that it's anywhere near as interesting as what it was during the era of the last dance and and then the years prior to that. 86 through 98 were absolutely the gold standard for the National Basketball Association. It was phenomenally entertaining, and you had stars who weren't stars because they were marketed to be stars. They were stars because they nutted up and they won championships. Magic Johnson became a star because he won championships. Larry Bird became a star because he won championships. Michael Jordan, same thing. Isaiah Thomas, same thing. Paul George, a star? Please, don't waste my time. And speaking of Isaiah Thomas, I heard him on Get Up this morning talking about the snub for the Dream Team in 92, that it's the one thing that's missing. And if he could go back and shake hands after that series loss in 1991 and then be welcomed out of that team in 92, he would do it in a heartbeat. It was heartbreaking to hear Isaiah Thomas, who I think, I I know there are people in town who don't really like him much based upon his behavior when he was a head coach here with the Pacers. I like Isaiah Thomas. I I saw Isaiah Thomas away from prying eyes. Nobody, this is at Warren Central High School, and his son was playing with the Speed Cindy Heat, the Greg Oden, uh, Michael Connolly team, summer team. They're playing in a tournament, and I'm there kind of taking tickets, all right, or, you know, selling tickets. I'm that guy. I'm a parent, and so it's my turn behind the counter. And nobody's in there. Nobody's in the lobby at all but Isaiah Thomas and his son. And Isaiah Thomas, for about five minutes, counseled his son as a father in a way that I was awed by. It was fascinating to hear this guy that you knew, like anybody who went to Indiana University, and got to know any basketball players, of course you heard stories about Isaiah Thomas and what a killer he was and and how he would do anything to win. But there's a tender side to this guy too. And that tenderness was in full flower with his son, had his arms around his son, talking to him about basketball and talking to him about life. And it was absolutely lovely. That moment for, for any father should count for much more than a dream team type deal. Has Michael Jordan had a moment like that with his sons? I don't know. But being witness to Isaiah Thomas doing that probably once of hundreds of times was absolutely awesome. And I gained a whole new perspective on Isaiah Thomas and an appreciation for Isaiah Thomas as a human being. And that's that's not something that I had when he was with Detroit as part of the bad boys. As part of the bad boys, He was a guy who would absolutely do anything he had to do to win a basketball game, and I admire that too. I didn't like it at the time because it was at the expense of the team that I was rooting for. Anyway, I find The Last Dance uh, entrancing, really, really compelling, and all kinds of interesting. There are flaws, certainly, 
But overall, what a wonderful thing to be able to watch and, and be able to relive for anybody who lived during that time. And if you didn't, watch this and you get a flavor for what it was like. Tomorrow morning, Breakfast with Kent, 8 o'clock straight up on Facebook Live, and then on Periscope and Twitter at about 8.15. It's a show so nice, we do it twice. KentSterling.com's got all you need. I write there. Videos are there. Audio's there. It's a one-stop shop for uh, anything that I produce whatsoever. We'll talk to you tomorrow morning, 8 o'clock, brought to you by the great people of Today's Dentistry.